Hey everybody, welcome to Random Musings from the Clinical Trials Guru. I really want to thank you for listening. If you feel compelled to do so, make sure you subscribe, uh, leave a review, comment, share, whatever you feel like doing. Help me out trying to grow this podcast, trying to continuously deliver value. A couple of things before we get into the show, check out the links in the show notes to my CRA Academy, my CRC Academy, both of them doing very well as far as getting people jobs in the marketplace. Check those out. Also, if you need help getting studies for your site or anything else, or even launching a site, basically any help for your site, we have a low monthly fee consulting service where we have helped many clients become and continue to be successful site owners through our background efforts of business development and support staff. Text me 949-415-6256. Please check out the links in the show notes as well for the book, The Comprehensive Guide to Clinical Research. It's been selling really well, getting very well received by the community. Thank you guys so much for that. Also check out the YouTube member page. Join this channel to get perks. That's my YouTube uh, membership. It's 10 bucks a month. You get a monthly mastermind exclusively. It's a Zoom call every month with other YouTube members. Uh, You also get weekly videos exclusive to the YouTube members on how to use social media to improve your opportunities in life sciences. So check that out. Really means a lot to me. And thank you so much again for listening and enjoy the show. We are live, it says Brad. We're live on Facebook. We're live on LinkedIn. We're live on YouTube. I don't know why I keep going live on Facebook because they don't show any love. Um, but I've tried Twitter a few times. You know, this StreamYard thing only lets you do like three. Right. And if I do Instagram, it's usually when I'm solo. So I'll do like my phone. And then now TikTok lets me live stream. So I have like my secondary phone for TikTok. I just wish they were all here. You know why? Because I can't live stream this on Instagram or TikTok because they won't hear you. And what the hell purpose is that? Like just hearing my half of the conversation. (laughs) Right, right. I've I've never even looked at TikTok like in my entire life. I'm I'm probably missing out, but I've I've literally never, I don't think I've ever seen anything on TikTok. I've never like seen the platform. So there's enough sites on there. There's enough. you're going to get like, I don't know so much about site owners. They're out there, but people who work at sites and you're going to get CRAs on there too. Cause they, they like to mess around just like everyone else. Sure. Um, so, and it's dude, that place is growing like big time. I'm really impressed with TikTok, like how the growth and the reach and the people that have never heard of me from other places, like they just find me there. It's amazing. Amazing, yeah, man. That was crazy, yeah. No, I know it's a big deal. I just, well, you know, I'm a, uh, frankly, I'm lazy. There's only so many hours in the day. I just. <laughs> but let's start this one. Look, we only got 45 minutes before we go live on yours. I'm going to switch to go inside after that. It's going to start getting hot. And the mister's going to get annoying after a while. But we're going to get to know Brad, the person. <laughs> because everybody knows Brad from Hightower Research, Right. Or Hightower Clinical? Hightower Clinical, yeah. By the way, okay, for the when we go live on with you, I'm gonna put the shoe somewhere in the background. So that's <laughs> nice. a, that's important. Okay. Brad everybody knows you on LinkedIn for 
keeping it real and being authentic and just ranting. I find it hilarious, man. I've just like randomly go on TikTok to post one of my videos and I see Brad with a rant and then like 800 comments. I'm like, holy <laughs> crap, there's an appetite for this. Uh, and then we, we, uh, we can discuss a lot of things about your business, but I feel like one thing that's missing and I'm personally curious about is like, who's Brad the person? And you were telling me you grew up on a small town in Oklahoma and you were all state in baseball. Is that right? <laughs> I was, yeah, I was, uh, played a lot of baseball growing up, traveling all over the country, playing, you know, AAU ball and things like that. But yeah, I grew up in very small town. I think I graduated high school with like 90 or a hundred kids. Uh, wow. I was the, you know, first in my family to go to college. Uh, Where'd you go? Where'd you go to college? I went, well, I went to the university of Oklahoma. Uh, for, okay. you know, that was like the, the big city, right. Compared to where I, where I grew up. Uh, and I dropped out after, you know, a year and a half and, uh, joined a band and moved joined a band. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I was, a. I mean, I've always loved music and played guitar and was really into, you know, punk rock and, and stuff like wow. that. So I moved to Austin and basically lived in like a two bedroom apartment with like five dudes. Right. So, you know, we were just, just there to play music and, uh, ended up just kind of DIY touring up and down the West coast, uh, for a couple of years. Really? So you have fans like before LinkedIn. <laughs> yeah, I don't know, but fans might be a bit of a stretch. But those were back in the uh, the MySpace days when, I mean, we booked like our whole tour through MySpace, you know, uh, which wow. was kind of hilarious, hilarious to think about. Dude, you got to make now. like an intro to Note to File, like your best song. Can you, were you singer or you just play guitar? I could, you know, I cannot sing worth okay. a damn. Okay. I don't know. I don't know. I just didn't get that. I was always a guitar good guitar guy though man you gotta like break out some of those like old songs like you know once in a while you have to people... <laughs> i don't know how much i don't know how much mass appeal it would have to people in the the research industry but i'm sure it's a more, maybe there's some more diverse musical taste than what i <laughs> assume it would appeal to me so anyways like i've always i was always curious about like your background and all that so you dropped out you did the band toured up and down the west coast yeah, and I actually then, ended up living in Seattle for another year and a half or so. Um, before, I mean, things kind of burnt out. We was getting was getting older. Uh, you know, uh, wasn't really going anywhere. It was pretty clear. You know, so decided to move back. My wife is from uh, Oklahoma City area, so we moved hmm. back there. And actually, uh, I went to work at a phlebotomy uh, center, or uh, I'm sorry, a plasma center. Uh, as a phlebotomist oh you were and, a phlebotomist uh, okay okay yeah i was a i was the phlebotomist uh we had wow a, we had a computer that tracked like our sticks and i think i would i was up like over twenty thousand sticks like before i left there so i'm uh i could pretty much draw blood in my sleep right now uh, oh my gosh okay so because i've never been formally trained but i i draw blood on patients every now and then like mainly when our cnas are not there and our new coordinator, Katie, shout out to her. We'll talk more about them in your video. We're going to go live on Brad's channel right after this. But um, I do blood draws like every now and then, but I can't. I can only use butterfly needle, and I can yeah. only do it like if I examine the vein for like five minutes. Otherwise, I won't try. <laughs> like I have to feel it. I have to see it. And I just want to poke once. If I miss, then I'm done. 
Yeah, it's like a, I mean, I still tell people it's like more of an art than a science, but so, I mean, we always buy butterflies. I don't ever use those crappy ones that come with the kits. Those are terrible. Those you suck. have no, you have no room to like move around or any room for air. You can't even tell if you get a flash. Yeah, you can't tell you know? if you get a right. stick. Yeah. Yeah. So those are terrible. I, I never use those. Uh, but I also, I, I bought some of our newer phlebotomists, one of the little lights, you know, that you can stick on the. Yeah. On the one of my and... doctor in San Bernardino showed me that, man. He's like, he draws the blood himself over there and he was showing me that. I was like, it's so cool. Yeah. It's not bad. I mean, I, you know, I still go old school. If I, I, I need to be able to feel it like versus see it. I got to feel that, that bounce in the, uh, antecubital area there. So mm. yeah, it's, but anyways, yeah, I did that. Uh, for a while, and then my uh, my sister-in-law worked at the university, uh, their health sciences center, uh, as a research assistant for a neurology department. And she was like, hey, you know, you want to be interested in, you know, interviewing or applying for the job? And I had no idea what it was, but I knew in my job I had to consent people. Uh, I had to draw their blood. So I had some sort of, you know, basic documentation skills and I guess a little bit of clinical skill there. Uh, so I got hired in as a research assistant for like, you know, 20 grand a year or something like that. I uh, started from the bottom and I hadn't finished my degree yet, which was, you know, problematic for a academic institution. Uh, so, it, I mean, that's 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 what got me in into the field. Uh, I see. You know, so it was sort of a, again, just an accident, really. And then like what? OK, so you start. Yeah, like most people. And then how did you what year was this? Like when you first I want to got say in, it was two thousand eight, two thousand eight, two thousand nine. Okay, and then you started Hightower Clinical when? I believe I broke out twenty eighteen. So yeah, it was a solid ten years. Ten years in, like so, in that ten years, what were you doing? I imagine you did coordinating at some point. Yeah, I mean, I basically started out, you know, as pretty much a low level assistant, but basically doing a coordinator's job. So. At that time, uh, the setup there was the coordinators did it all. Uh, I mean, they couldn't sign a contract, but they really did, you know, the budget negotiation uh, before it got sent up up the chain. Uh, you know, created all the source, did all the data entry. It wasn't structured out uh, in a, you know, very specific way. So everybody kind of did everything, which, uh, you know, ultimately I think was a good thing. Uh, it was frankly really poorly organized so i mean nobody <laughs> nobody wanted to really like train you there wasn't any formal <laughs> training it was sort of like hey uh good luck <laughs> if you can stick it out you know if you can stick it out you you might get somewhere but if not then you know oh well yeah i think there's some value there though because i was the same happened to me more or less like my first day they told me to build a cabinet from lowe's for a drug and then to go buy dry ice and then read a protocol so they just put me in a room with a protocol and i just read it the whole day i'm like all right this is interesting but you know now when i have employees i train i train them and we could talk about that on your life but i actually think that there is some value in making someone do that mainly to see if they stick around well it's weird and i feel very mixed i have mixed feelings because on the one hand i do I would like to see more formalized training for clinical research coordinators, but I, I, to your point, I think that there's, it almost seems like uniquely difficult to like just train someone. They just have to live through it, right? They have to sort of see it, do it, 
it takes time uh, to really be exposed, I think, to the, the sort of breadth of stuff that comes up as a research coordinator. And, you know, it's like reading a protocol, right? You get a protocol, if you read it front to end, I, I'm not going to remember it. I'm going to have to wait till the study starts and start doing the study. You love to read protocols, you. I mean, Nada says she likes to read you. protocols. Good for you, I, Nada, you're not human. I don't know what, <laughs> like you're an AI or something. You're a bot. Elon Musk was right. There's bots. Social media is full of bots. Nah, I'm kidding. There's there's protocols. Some people like it. I never did. Um, lately, I started getting into investigator brochures because something like has been tickling my hard science funny bone these last few years. I think COVID had a lot to do with it. But um, All right, so you put in a decade there. And what made you think, like, I'm going to start my own? Like, what was it? Was it the money? Did you get up, uh, get around to seeing some budgets? Or did you just, were you always an entrepreneur? Uh, yeah, what I mean, makes so, somebody do that? Yeah, it's a good question. I think there was a couple of different things. One, so I left, I did leave the university uh, and worked for a, a hospital who had a spinoff nonprofit, basically, who managed the research for the hospital. Um, so I thought like, oh, great, this is going to be so much better. Don't have to use a local IRB. Uh, but it, it still was just run terribly. And it was so frustrating to me to be working within these institutions where like nobody really gave a crap about clinical research. They tended to always be the last thing anyone cared about. It was bottom priority. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and all the while <laughs> I was, you know, talking to other doctors in the community who were like, yeah, I'd love to participate in, in research. I'd love to bring in some revenue. I'd love to try out new stuff. So I was like, okay, well, the places where research is happening, nobody gives a shit about it. And the, <laughs> people, who, the people who really want to do research don't have the ability or the resources to do it. You know, So mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, it, it really kind of became a like, uh, to go back to you know punk rock days, it was like stick it to the man and, and go like, you know, set up these more independent, sites that can compete and even out enroll, you know, these, these big centers. So I, I really just felt like, again, it was a missed opportunity. Um, I mean, it, it occurred to me that there's some money in it, but look, if I wanted to make money, I'd probably be doing something different than running sites, you know? <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. I think the, and we can get into a whole bunch of stuff. Cause I know you and I both love decentralized trials. <laughs> And Nelson, Nelson put a link. I can't click it, Nelson, but I know what this is about. Thir Science 37, whatever they're called. The one that Brad is out enrolling, by the way, in a study. Uh, let me point that out. Um, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> not immune to broader wave of biotech layoffs. Yeah, no shit, guys. If you're not actually making money, you're not going to survive in, when the economy turns a little sour. And in our industry, it's not sour. But VC is drying up. You got to be profitable. So, okay. And some of this week I want to save for your stream too. But sure. it resonates with me what you said. Because the problem with research, I still see this as a problem. You've got the academic medical centers and the hospital systems. Kind of I lump them into one group because they're large bureaucracies. And they can do it. And there's a lot of benefits. Look, we bash the AMCs all the time. There's a lot of value in using an AMC. Number one, the key opinion leader. But number two, everything is in-house. 
So, like, you know, for all these studies, you need, like, okay, you need an x-ray for this, you need an MRI for this, you need a colonoscopy for this, you need God knows what else. You need something right. for every study. Mom-and-pop sites don't really have that, unless they're, like, the specialist for that. But even then, you need things that are not in your specialty, usually. So AMCs are the perfect place for this. problem with AMCs is... There's no incentives there. Like, only the KOL, they're only incentives. Okay, let me publish and this and that. Like, the coordinators have no incentive. Usually they use, like, uh, residents, basically, right. like, slave labor to work as coordinator, and then they can't wait till they leave. So, and not to mention local IRBs and all that stuff. And then you got these small mom and pop sites, and the clinicians, they're, most of them are short-sighted, like, you know, they're just like doers. Like, I'm going to do this action and make this money. And that's repeatable. And usually it just means volume. Right. And I remember my PI, he, him and a physician assistant own Yuma's largest practice. And the PA, the physician assistant partner, she told me, Dan, all I care about is revenue per square foot. <laughs> and I, t I've never heard this metric before in a healthcare setting, no, but she, she's thinking, I'm going to give you a room. I've never measured my room. I don't know how many square feet it is. If I put a provider in there, that provider, I'm going to pay them X dollars a year. That provider is going to generate me this much because I already have the patients to send them there. Sure. So you got to make me more than that. And I'm thinking to myself, you have no idea what these budgets look like for just one patient that we randomize. Right? right. So this is the problem between AMC and small mom and pop. Neither can truly get the job done on their own. It's always going to require someone like Brad Hightower to come in and connect the dots. So that's kind of what you're doing. And I guess it sounds like the mission for what Hightower Clinical yeah, that's it. I mean, we've uh, we've kind of <laughs> found the interesting middle ground, and we're partnered with a hospital system now. Uh, so we actually do have a clinic, you know, nice clinic space there, and access to everything in house. And since we have a vendor relationship, you know, we don't kind of fall victim to some of the problems that AMCs do. Like, you know, we can work with the doctors who want to do the trials; they're there. Uh, they do have both financial incentive as well as, you know, key opinion leader incentive, if you will, or uh, cutting edge technology incentive, whatever you want to call it. Uh, but we don't have to work within a local IRB. Uh, we can negotiate uh, the budgets on our, our own behalf. It doesn't have to go through layers and layers like it may in, in some academic institutions. Uh, so we kind of get the best of both worlds in, in partnerships like that. So I, I'm curious to see if that becomes more popular where instead of these institutions trying to like internalize it they just partner with a vendor who can do it way faster uh way better and with you know more i guess aligned incentives for lack of a better phrase i mean i feel like that that's a maybe the sweet spot on top of the you know independent uh relationships that you know private practices yeah uh <laughs> i mean or you can just look at decentralized trial startups and prove they're not immune to a broader wave of biotech layoffs. So like what you and I both talk about this a lot, you know, DCT, I mean, certainly elements of that elements of remote monitoring, it's already here. Sure. But to say that that's the end all be all, I mean, to me, it's like, 
sponsors are looking at these companies to save them from sites overestimating their capabilities, particularly when it comes to recruitment. But I don't see how these, I mean, you, you've competed against like Sciences 37, right? And they do enroll a good amount of patients. Like you were top For enroller sure. and they were number two, right? What do you think like companies like that, and not to just pick on them, but like all of them, what are their weaknesses in your opinion? I mean, again, it's, it's, first of all, I think it's not real clear how some of these companies even are operating, like to me, you know, or like what, how they're doing things. So, I mean, the obvious one right off the bat that you, you know, sh surely relate to is like, we are human beings, you know, in front of other human beings, uh, oftentimes sort of nurtured through a physician relationship. So, I mean, I think there's already, you know, uh, that human component that you may not get if you're responding to an ad on Reddit, you know, for lung cancer screening or whatever the case may be. Uh, so, I mean, I feel like that's challenging, but if I'm somebody like, you know, science 37, then I mean, how are you getting to all these disparate medical records in a timely manner? Or like, it seems it's hard enough, like when you're on site trying to get medical records for the patient in front of you, like it's, that seems like an interesting yeah challenge i don't know i'm sure they have it figured out they have tens of millions of dollars uh, apparently they've got algorithms you know what algorithm can't solve you forget to put a sticker on a urine tube when there's like three urine tubes for some reason there's three urine tubes in this lab kit amongst <laughs> right. blood and you got to put stickers on all of them my coordinator asked me we were busy the other day she's like hey i put stickers on two should i put on the third i'm like yeah if you already package it just send it well, sure enough, they don't want to read it. They don't want to analyze it. The patient's got to come in, give another urine uh, sample. And we had to convince the patient, like, hey, you know what? We made a mistake. Like, we didn't put a sticker on your urine. Can you come back? We'll give you extra stipend for coming in. Right. Um, I don't see, like, how an AI is going to do this. Like, unless you go to the patient's house, but we can do that too. We can also yeah. go to the patient's house. Yeah, I mean, again, I, I feel like the application is a lot more limited than it's being made out to be, which I mean, probably apparent by the fact that these companies aren't exactly out here kicking ass. I mean, if somebody gave me $40 million, uh, I could open up a shitload of successful sites <laughs> and I don't see how, you know, these, these companies can't, can't make that, make that happen. You know, it's, it, you know, it's but you think you can mind. manage them. You think you could manage them all? Like, no, I could build, but I could build a team that could, yeah. you know what I'm saying? I could build a company that could, that could, get that yeah. done and execute on that. I mean, again, mm -hmm. maybe maybe I'm overestimating, but it seems wild <laughs> to see these valuations thrown around and then these, you know, these turn around and, crazy. and turn turn around and then everybody's getting laid off and you know interesting I mean to sort of keep yeah, I was exactly I was wanted to point out that from from Nelson. I mean, is what I mean in your opinion, what is this like is this good or bad? I can't I can't imagine you think it's good for, for the I site mean, I think it's here. good for the site owners who sell, you know, they cash out. They want to cash out. That's fine. I think for people like you and I, it's good because as long as we continue to be operators. See, I don't think that I could, like, I could have you, McClinical Trails, be successful. I can have my former site in San Bernardino be successful because I've already built it. So now it runs without me. I don't think I can do Yuma Clinical Trials and Tampa Clinical Research and Missouri Clinical Trial and Little Rock all at the same time. And even if I build a team, I think 
and maybe that's just because I'm not a capable manager. Maybe I think I'm good at spotting talent and probably cultivating talent, but operating at scale is very tough. And when companies like this do this, they rely on technology to do it. And I don't think you're getting a Brad Hightower running all those 170 sites. Like, their Brad Hightower is cashing out. I know a lot of these owners who sold, and they're like, yeah, I got to stay for three years. But, you know, they're just kicking back. They're kicking back, guys. They're watching, like, uh, uh, videos on YouTube about music. They're just they're, they're chilling. They're planning their next vacation. You know, they're, they're working hard on planning their next vacation like they used to work on getting new studies. So these new owners that come in, they're going to hire people like project managers. And pro- probably this project manager come from a CRO. And that's a different business environment because right. you've got, like at CROs, they're publicly traded. You've got public funds. Here, you've got venture capital, for, uh, private equity funds. Those guys are going to want to see returns. And when you're not, you know, you, you can't come in and run a small site the way you run Ikevia. Even if it's a network of small sites, each one has to be managed independently. So I think, like, for people like us, it's a good thing. Number one, we, you know, we're going to stand out. Number two, it shows us what our valuations are, should we ever want to sell. Um and I think that private equity is going to take a second look at this stuff. Like, that's my opinion. I don't think, like, Brad Hightower, like, you you, you would go to any of those 170 sites and that site would be successful. I think somebody else, even if you hire them, I think they would do, like, 80% as good as you. And maybe that's good enough. But these PE people, they bring in PMs. All they care about is their salary and to play it safe. Well, yeah, that's what I mean. I wonder, and I mean, I struggle with this concept even myself. Is like, how is this tough to scale uh, and to maintain, you know, some semblance of you know running the business the way you want it to run and not be? Because I mean, I have to imagine to your point too. I mean, private equity, what do they care about? They care about return on their investment. I mean, they don't give a shit if you know you're mm-hmm. you're doing things this way, that way, or the other. Whichever one gives them the most bang for their buck is the one that they want, and. You know, I, I'm going to make a post about this, but, uh, you know, my son was in a, the Moderna trial. Uh, he's, he's two, uh, and we, we didn't run it. We, there was another competing site that, that runs it and they're owned by, you know, uh, private equity, my understanding. It was the worst experience I've ever had in my entire life. And of course, you know, I'm probably more judgmental because I, you know, operate research sites, but. You know, I was there for three and a half hours and you saw six different people. It was just completely insane. And I mean, that's the kind of thing I mess I imagine when I think about these, again, uh, <laughs> these wow. big, you know, big acquisitions and big mergers. I mean, I wonder how that experience is getting that. like watered down. We got to look, get into that. So first of all, I didn't know you had a son. Amazing. One kid or you have more? I have a nine-year-old daughter and a two-year-old son. Wow. Okay. That's awesome. Okay, so you volunteered your son for the Moderna vaccine trail. Yeah. And, well, your experience was, like, what made it bad? Like, what part of it, like, was bad? I mean, I think there was a a real, like, lack of consistency in uh, who you're even, like, dealing with. So there it was, you walk in, 
uh, first of all, <laughs> the like this is just such interesting, and I think it was so informative for me to like walk into a lobby that's like chaos of people, you know, uh, twenty five minutes late to get you know our screening visit. Like we sat there, we got there early, but we're called back like twenty five minutes late. Whatever, mm. I know shit happens, but you know that's something we're like super sensitive about, you know, in, in yeah. our company. Mm. Um, you sit with the coordinator in their office and then you get shoved into another room and then somebody different comes by to get vitals and somebody different comes by to get blood. The doctor comes in for a few minutes. Uh, he leaves. Yet another person comes by to administer the shot. We got shuffled off to a room to wait for the observation period. It was so funny because the room was like their like storage area where there's like e-diaries like stacked up in the corner and i'm like what what this is like where like, ch a small child has to like wait you know to be observed for you know any inter interactions he's having uh so, yeah i mean again all that process is three three and a half hours long mm -hmm. uh there's more and again i want i'm gonna write a long post about it I'm no lunch no entertainment for you or the kids like nothing or no 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 yeah no there were again there's a empty room aside from like storage uh, for some of their supplies which again i thought was a very strange choice i wanted to walk off with a bunch of their e-diaries just to, to mess <laughs> with them but... <laughs> and this was in oklahoma city or where you yeah. traveled for this no i was in oklahoma city yeah see that okay that is like brings it down to like a granular level like all this talk about tech and let's put in systems here's Felucio, and felucia has got a good good question for you but he says it's a matter of having systems in place i would say there's re there comes a point where having a system is counterproductive to the patient experience and here's my system oh, right no. now Sorry, it's me it, it's me and two coordinator that's my system if there's a patient they don't wait more than like five seconds in the waiting room they come in if they're hungry we ask them we go buy them food we go buy them coffee whatever they need we make sure that they're there if they if they say they want to quit we say well why why is that can we work it out can you stay a little longer systems don't do that systems reward people for following the system Anyways. Well, and I, I think, it, and again, this is why I think it's challenging to scale is because, I mean, you're working within a certain clinic. And if you go work with the clinic down the street, they, your interaction with that clinic may be totally different. They may have different expectations of you uh, yeah. coming in as a vendor. And I find that every clinic we work with, it's a different relationship. Some of them, you know, want us to work and schedule with their, you know, through their scheduling staff some of them want to keep us off of their calendar some of them want us to use this exam room some of them don't care which ones we use so it makes it very challenging to make you know a overarching system because i think uh, clinics all run so differently and frankly look participating in clinical research if you're you know especially a private practice physician it sucks it's a lot of work it's a lot of bullshit to deal with <laughs> the only way i think that we're going to get more physicians involved is by making it easy for them and you know i assume that your mission isn't unlike mine like i want them i want you to be seamless for them as much as possible now we know that's not always the case but i mean if we want these guys to participate it's got to be simple uh i mean as simple as it yeah. can be and again that's different for for each physician i mean and to the, also mm -hmm. that point some physicians want to be more involved they do want uh 
mm. you know, to have a, have a more of a hand in the patient visit or even, you know, uh, wow. knowing more about the science or talking to the sponsor. Some of them want more of that. So you've got to be sensitive to that. So it makes it tough again to say like, well, this is the way we do things. Well, yeah, but that may not work over here. So you can't. Yeah. Brad, you're no nonsense, man. No wonder people follow you on LinkedIn and comment like crazy. If you start like playing your guitar, it's over, man. But anyways, <laughs> anyways, so you just brought up a good point. All right. I've I've learned this myself the hard way. It didn't take me long to learn it, though. Like within a year of running my site back in 05, 06, 07, I was like, look, because I, I was doing an MBA program at the time, too. So I was like, all right, let's figure out business plan. Let me figure out like what this actually is. Who are our stakeholders? I had to think about them. Like, okay, obviously patients. Okay, who pays us? Okay, sponsor zeros. Okay, two. But there's something missing, and it's the clinicians. They're our third customer. At least I considered them a customer because usually they were partners of mine. Um, I think that third stakeholder, the clinicians, at the AMCs. I don't want to drop these two fingers, then I'll flip you off. <laughs> but at the AMC. And at the large hospital system, they only have two customers. They have sponsor and patients. The doctors, the, the clinicians, they're just employees. They do right. what they're told. That's it. I think that element right there is missing at these larger places. Even at these PE places. Guess who half of those guys or gals that they bought it from, or maybe 25% of those sites that they bought were clinician-owned. Do you think a clinician is going to behave differently as an owner as opposed to an employee? <laughs> what tech right. is going to fix that? What right. AI is going to fix that? Yeah, no. Again, I think there's there's a well. Look, again, we can go deep with the DCT thing because I mean, ultimately, I think we're solving, we're trying to solve a problem, or you're creating a solution for a problem that's like way further upstream, and that's that inclusion exclusion criteria are garbage. I think if you uh, if it was opened up, uh, we wouldn't need to, you know, try to reach the ends of the earth to find patients. Like, does it not blow your mind? Like, I work with a migraine specialist. He has headache patients all day long. I should be able to enroll patients in a migraine trial, but I can't because of ridiculously stringent criteria. I mean, <laughs> now instead you want to say, well, let's um, advertise to everybody everywhere. You know, well, I mean, we could have if your criteria were more reflective of what the actual patient populations look like, I mean, we would be done with this in, you know, no time at all. So it's, I don't know. It seems like we're solving, trying to solve the wrong problems in some ways. Yeah. I think they save that for like the phase four, but, and, but the problem with that is if they were easy, then I don't think they would necessarily need sites like yours and mine, maybe. Like maybe the Oklahoma University can do it at that point. Yeah, you know, I think it's the fair. fact that we have to go hustle to find our patients, which is what these big AMCs and hospital systems won't do because it's their lunch break. And on my <laughs> lunch break, if I'm not enrolling, I'm not getting paid. I'm not eating, literally not eating. So I'm going to go out and find patients on my lunch break. Yeah, that's a uh, – I had this conversation with a sponsor who, you know, we were the leading enroller and they were working with a bunch of academic sites. And, you know, I had that same observation. I was like, look, they, all they want to do is not lose their job. 
<laughs> and yeah, and, on, and honestly, the best way to not lose your job is to not enroll any patients because then you're not going to make any mistakes. You're not going to yeah. have any major protocol deviations, and probably research is subsidized by the department anyway, so they don't yeah. really have any any incentive to be, you know, a you know, revenue generator. Uh, they just want to stay under the radar and uh, <laughs> tick the boxes. And you're right. I mean, I've been in the, more, screen more one. In the same spot. Screen, yeah, screen one when the when the sponsor complains. All right, we got one. We know they're going to fail, but we got so you can see activity. Exactly. Yeah. Just look like you're working. Be at your desk from eight <laughs> to five and look like you're working. <laughs> yeah, it's ridiculous, man. Okay, let's go through some of these comments. Um, that's a wild study visit. I worked on multiple of the Moderna trials at two different sites. So, with your experience, Brad, would you have, would you or anyone in your family do a trial again? I mean, yes, and again, probably just because I know that's not necessarily. I mean, hopefully, that's not indicative of how normal study participation works. Now, if I were not, uh, if I had no concept of clinical research and this was my first experience. Uh, I'd probably be like, no, this sucked. Um, it was terrible. There's, I mean, there's even more to the story that made it more, uh, even more of a just cluster. But Let's no, go. I mean, Let's go. If, <laughs> well, so he was placebo. He was on the placebo arm. It was after they went ahead and approved it for his child or for his uh, age group. So, you know, we called him up, say, hey, um, okay, he's placebo. Can we like get a real shot now or what? How do we? You know, unblind us, tell us what, what to do. So they were like, fine. They brought him in and gave him a shot. Uh, there was a lot of confusion, though, when we got there as to whether or not he did have placebo, which, of course, made me be like, oh, Jesus Christ, what? I mean, <laughs> okay. Wow. Let me see Let me see your IVR, like, you know, whatever. But, you know, then he gets the shot. They get the card. The card has the wrong, like, information. It's got the wrong date on it. So we're like, okay, is this the right? Is this the right? thing oh what, what is going on yeah so it was just a. again it was a didn't exactly breed confidence in uh, the clinical trial process so yeah if i were somebody who didn't know any better i might I would just be pissed, like brad yeah i would never i would can probably not go through that process again i would have called the fda so fast brad all right you're a better <laughs> man than i all right um Hey, Skylar just finished CRC Academy. Yes, I know. I know. We're going to work hard to get her a job ASAP. All right. This one's important for you, Brad, because I know when we go live on your stream, I won't have a chance to ask you this. If a private equity comes in to buy you out, Brad, would you accept it? Probably not, at least not at this point. I've had wow. some, some people offer. Um, I don't know that I've sort of like built enough of a built enough value to be worth selling for me at this point. Mm -hmm. uh, I also, and you know, to go back to our conversation, like what are, I don't own anything, right? So what I'm selling is my relationship that I have with, with the physicians and clinics that I work in. So I always find this concept weird because I mean, if you buy Hightower clinical and I say, peace, and the doctor <laughs> meets you and says, "Oh, this guy's an asshole. I don't want to work with him." Yeah. Then, what have you? What have you bought? You know. Yeah, it's over at that point. If that doctor says, "Hey, Brad used to play guitar for me on lunchtime," and this guy's a, <laughs> right. you know, absolute douche. Okay. So yeah. Um, Anyways, no, no, probably not. At least not for a while, unless somebody just 
if anybody out there is listening and they want to make me an insane offer, then let's. Yeah, I'm but listening. Other, <laughs> I'm listening. But otherwise, probably, probably not. No, I'm listening. They they'd have to offer me like what I think you clinical trials potential is worth, and the kind of the marketplace for that's gone. Potential is gone. It's what you've done for me lately, like Janet Jackson. Okay, <laughs> right. that's why there are guys like you, Dan, that take the burden of running the trial. Exactly right, exactly right. Christopher, what up? My only Facebook viewer, thank you. But the criteria is much complex because the sponsor is looking for certain things. Sponsors getting greedy. You can't blame them, though, because they're, they're, these trials are costing more and more, and they're just trying to get more data. I saw your conversation with Darshan about who owns data. Um, I watched a little bit of that. That was a good one. Uh, nobody knows the answer is the Cliff Notes version of uh, no, to, <laughs> that. To, Christ, to Christopher's point, I think yeah. uh, what we're seeing is like just yeah, a ton of cherry picking. I feel like you know, like yeah, you're gonna you're picking the patients that it's most likely to get the effect that you want from. But then when you drug gets marketed, it seems like it, it gets prescribed a lot more widely, right? Yeah. Like, which feels really gross to me. You know, I mean, an easy example is like the BMI a migraine trial with a BMI exclusion after 30, BMI 30. Yeah. This drug goes to market. Are they not going to give it to anyone with BMI over 30? No, right. of course not. They're going to, but they're you can't blame them though. You can't blame them because the FDA says, this is what we need to get you approval quick. If you want to do all that, okay, well dude, that's what phase four. Like yeah, I got empathy yeah. for the sponsors, but yeah, I know it's a pain in the ass, but I think that pain in the ass is what keeps people like me and you employed. That's uh, fair. Former site director lead CRC at one of those sites with high enrolling trials, making it as simple as possible for the sub eyes imperative. Dan, do you have a person dedicated to recruitment? Not yet at my site. No, we just hired a very part-time social media guy, but no, right now it's me and the two girls and we're going to get into it on Brad's um, live stream in a little bit. Nelson always writes like Kindle. Nelson, I feel like I should pay 99 cents for reading this. I think there are other industries. This has already happened. IVF is done mostly through PE-owned facilities with full-time employed uh, reproductive. Uh, I didn't know that. Lots of parallels to clinical trial. Minimum PE-owned research sites will have an incredibly short timeline for startup. Yes, but I think the difference is patients who are going to, like, IVF, they know what they're getting into. Like, they're willing to pay for it. So in, in clinical research, you don't. You're kind of, like, just betting that this site is going to take care of you and you don't really know what's happening like i think that's the difference like people know ivf they do their homework on ivf people don't do their homework on research sites like there's no yelp for there probably is but like they don't go look like do due diligence usually it's somebody like brad or me or one of my coordinators that gets them from the database and tells them like hey you know and that's how they join they don't oftentimes don't have any clue what they're getting into uh, i think it's different before you switch to Brad's channel, will you put a link in the comments? Um, yeah, Maximus. I know who you are, Maximus. Uh, just go on Brad's LinkedIn. Nelson, good point. Um, all right, let's go. I know we got to do like six minutes. Totally agree with your point, Brad, says Christopher, uh, about when the drug hits the market. Many PIs ask me about that when I'm on site. Ross. The man who wrote the book on Facebook recruitment, it looks like certainly in Europe we're heading towards a situation where patient involvement in a trial design will be mandated. Oh, man. I don't want to. This is another hour-long thing. Uh, <laughs> wouldn't it be good and deliver better outcomes all around if site involvement at an early stage were also mandated? Yes. <laughs> 
Yeah, but we can go on for a while about those patient advocates. Oftentimes they're paid. They're not re representative of their peers. Yeah, that, I'm, uh, I've, I admittedly don't know a lot about that world, but I've wondered uh, because there seem like there are a couple or at least maybe a handful of sort of prevalent patient advocates and people who work. And I don't know. Again, I'm curious to know if that is representative, like you say, and because isn't there like a weird chicken or the egg thing? Like if you ask a patient who hasn't been in a clinical trial, they're not going to have any idea what they want because they don't have any exactly. frame of reference. But if you get people, the same people who have been in a clinical trial, are you going to get, I don't know. It's a weird, it seems like a weird uh, well, sort of conundrum there. I went to a big conference. It smells fishy, right? Let's just put it that way. I went to a big conference um, and one of the, I went to a breakout session and one of the strategies on virtual trials, I brought it up in the breakout session like, yeah, but you know, that, cl that clinician patient relationship, you can't replace that. And they said, oh, but what if you could with the growing increase of influencers across all therapeutic indications, you have an influencer, you have a Brad Hightower for like any disease, Brad, like we don't know them because we're not into that space, but they're basically there. So if you line these influencers up, and not all of them, you know, probably all of them do it for good intentions. But once pharma gets to them, it's hard to say no when they start throwing money at, at them, right? Like it's hard for them. And so far it hasn't been done properly. Like it's just the beginning stages. Like, oh, let's invite you to speak at this conference. I don't know sure. if it's paid or not. I don't know details. Let's invite you to work on this protocol. Now, what they really want is, can you be influential and help us recruit patients? And who knows? Maybe it's going to work. Maybe it's not. But it's not as simple as just like, okay, like let's get patients to help write protocols. Like most patients don't want to do that. They just want treatment, better treatments, better outcomes, better alternative. They don't want to write a protocol. Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. Again, it does seem more complicated. And I have to imagine a more vocal patient advocates probably very um, conveniently uh, are going to be pro DCT, you know, versus yeah. I, I know if I ask somebody from my clinic and say, hey, I'm going to send somebody out to your house, they're going to say, no, you're not. You're not going <laughs> to do that. Um, you know, we've got a lot of rural population and they're uh don't like people, you know, coming onto their, their property. <laughs> so yeah. Uh, yeah, I just think that's an interesting, you know, Oh, they go in the wrong place in Oklahoma. They're going to get, <laughs> that's going to be a bad outcomes for that problem. vendor. I'll tell you that. <laughs> All right. So two more minutes before we switch to yours, Brad, I'm going to do a quick outfit change and go inside my studio. But, um, anything else you want to say to the people out there we can do this for like three hours, Brad? It's true. It's true. No, I mean, again, uh, you know, come on over to to my stream, check it on LinkedIn and you know, I, lo I love the little crossover. I think this is a fun, uh, a fun idea here. Yeah. I'm like creating content all day. So, all right, guys, like, subscribe, comment, share, go find Brad. If you're watching this later, you're missing out on the live, but go find Brad. He's always posting things on LinkedIn, um, about, Who's your biggest audience? It's got to be sites, right? I think I think sites. I think I'm seeing a little bit more interaction from the, the sponsor and CRO side, but yeah, there's certainly certainly mm -hmm. a lot a lot of sites who are engaging. All right, Brad, it's going to be interesting to follow your career um, and for everyone else as well. So thank you guys. Like, subscribe, comment, share. Catch y'all later. Go.
go follow Brad right now on LinkedIn because we're going to go live on his platform right now. Take care. All right. See you guys.